0: Up until the 8th grade, my mind was like a long hotel hallway with evenly spaced doors opening into separate and symmetric rooms that neatly housed my knowledge on particular subjects. There was a room uh, for math and a room for English. There was a room for uh, Mortal Kombat cheat codes on PlayStation 1. There was a room I didn't tell my friends about, and that's where I kept my Beanie Babies. There was a room for girls, but it was pretty much empty. It was a very tidy system. Everyone kept to their own room until I summoned them forth, one at a time, to engage with my adolescent gray matter. When I no longer required their knowledge, I sent the subjects back. It worked great until one day the dinosaurs got loose. And they didn't tiptoe lightly down the hall, no, they stampeded straight toward the one room I most needed to keep spotless. I remember the exact moment they breached the door. I was mowing the grass on a summer evening, all alone, and in the safety of oblivious solitude, probably thinking "Eh, about my next beanie baby, and then like a world-ending meteorite from the heavens, it hit me. Where are dinosaurs in the Bible? The giant reptiles had invaded my mental space reserved for God's holy word, and they were running amok. I stopped in the middle of my mo-line, running through the days of creation with hurried angst. Okay, first, uh, it was um, uh, light. Right? First day. Second day was sky. Third day, um, land? Maybe vegetables or something about firmament? My my memory was spotty, but I definitely did not recall anything about Tyrannosaurus. Maybe they were lumped in with the land animals, I thought. But then there was the whole seven-day thing. Did God create them and kill them in one day without any mention of them in the creation story? I mean... Like something I would start on my etch-a-sketch, not like, then shake away out of existence? And, and, and then what about how I'd always been told that dinosaurs lived millions of years ago? How does that fit into the story of God's first work week? And this was not good. I needed those giant lizards back in their room. But you've seen Jurassic Park. You know that wasn't going to happen. So the next best choice was to cut off the mower... And go talk with my dad, who is no scientist and who is far from a Bible scholar or theologian. He's, he's a carpenter. So I approached him with great apprehension, worried that my unwelcome discovery might threaten the extinction of his faith as well. But for the sake of my own, I had to tell him, Dad, I can't find dinosaurs in the Bible To my great relief, Dad received the revelation with more grace than I had. Apparently, the rooms in his cerebral hotel are unlocked and guests mingled a bit more freely than in mine. He had thought about that before, he said, as well as a lot of other questions that seemed really scary when they first occurred to him. He talked about how he had gone to his pastor when he was young, who told him that people interpret the Bible in a lot of different ways. Some people do look at it as a literal word-for-word account of history and science, along with matters of faith, and they find ways to make dinosaurs and other discoveries fit into that. But there are also other people who interpret some passages, like the creation account, more metaphorically, who think the original authors of the Bible had different, grander intentions when telling those stories than just to recount events from the past. Such folks, Dad said, uh, might say, okay, creation took six days plus one of rest, but the Bible also says that to God a day is like a thousand years, so maybe it wasn't a standard Sunday through Saturday sort of thing. It didn't give me an answer, but it did give me permission Permission to ask questions, permission to leave the Bible's door open, to let it breathe and engage with the other knowledge taking residence in my mind. Permission, I suppose, to let the dinosaurs roam. I'm Paul Burgess, and this is the Naked Preacher Podcast. The fear that evening was that my question would render my faith extinct. The relief was that ultimately it actually proved my faith was alive. Because if faith isn't engaging with life as we learn more about it, pursuing the questions that naturally raises, if faith isn't growing in that way, how can we say it's alive? How can we say it's anything more than a cold slab of doctrine? and tradition, and behavioral prescriptions that sits in its own little room, separate and sequestered from the rest of life as we know it. That's where a pastor named Brian Zond found his faith early in his 40s. Now, Brian has been a Christian since he was like a teenager. Uh, He had a dramatic conversion experience and, and really turned into a rock star for Jesus, loved him with everything he had, and many many lives have been made better because of it. That authentic love for Christ led Brian to start a church, the Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri, where he has pastored all of his adult life. But after a couple of decades, Brian dried up. He knew what his tradition had handed him. He knew the formulas of Christian theology and the motions of Christian life. But the fate that yielded, didn't feel relevant, vital, and thus began a theological journey that would ultimately transform not just Brian's church and ministry, but his entire life, a journey from one station of belief to another. To use his words, it was a transition from water into wine. I invited Brian to come on the podcast, not just because I want to hear about that journey, but because he lived it in front of his congregation. He processed his questions and his discoveries and even some changes openly from the pulpit week after week. To me, that requires a great degree of pastoral vulnerability, and I was eager to hear what his experience was like. Uh, Before we do hear from him, though, I want to say one thing. Hopefully, all ministers, if we're being sincere in our faith and in our pursuit of our calling, are growing. And naturally, all of us are going to grow at different paces and likely in some different directions. And not all of us are going to arrive at places that look just like Brian's. Some of us will arrive at places that actually look significantly different. What concerns me for the purpose of this podcast is not so much the content of where Brian is theologically or doctrinally today, but the journey itself and the vulnerability it required for him to say, you know what, this is where I've been, and this is where I was, and this is what's happening to me now. And being honest about where he felt the Spirit was leading him. You know, he didn't have to have the integrity, to be honest about that, in front of those he served. But he did, and it was costly. But he was called to be the person that God was making him, and he did exactly that. Whether or not our own theological journeys take us to the exact same place as his is not nearly as important as opening ourselves to God in willingness to be on the journey and opening ourselves to others in willingness to share it. Coming on the podcast today, we have a special guest who is the founding pastor and he's he's still the lead pastor of the Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. He preaches there most weeks. Um, also an author who's written several books, including A Farewell to Mars, and Unconditional with a question mark, "Sinners uh, in the Hands of a Loving God, and a particular relevance for this lowly preacher, uh, water to wine, some of my story. Not only that, but he knows more than you know about Bob Dylan, and I guarantee it. <laughs> I <do>. uh, <laughs> Yes, he does. Uh, he's Pastor Brian Zahn. Brian, thank you for being here with us today, man.
1: Thank you for having me, Paul. It's good to meet you and be yes, with, you. Yes, with you. Yes,
0: sir. Likewise, likewise, um, and, and you are a distinguished guest, uh, not only for those reasons that I just named, but uh, though this isn't the first episode of the Naked Preacher podcast, this is the very first interview mm. I've ever done, and uh, so this could go really horribly.
1: Hey, I'm, um, <laughs> easy. I'm easy, just ask me what you want to ask me, and I just roll with
0: it. All right, man, sounds like a Rolling Stone, one would like say. A Stone. Once upon a
1: time, you dressed so fine through the bums of (laughs) dime in your prime, didn't you?
0: Oh, there it is, man. There it is. Um, Well, the story of this podcast is that I wanted to create a space uh, where ministers, you know, people of the cloth uh, can share stories of vulnerability at times that um, pastors or preachers or chaplains or youth ministers or or whoever dared to be a bit more authentic, uh, more real in front of those they serve in hopes that maybe ministers who listen can uh, get a little bit of community from that and maybe be empowered to be a bit more uh, vulnerable in front of those they serve as well. Uh, so when people have asked me, like, well, who are you going to have have on to be a guest? I've, I've thrown out uh, your name. And uh, to describe you, I say, well, he's this pastor who's been on a pretty intense theological journey. And he went on this journey in front of his congregation, which I think is Pretty vulnerable. And we'll get into what that journey was. But first, I'm curious as to how you would characterize that journey because I find myself tempted to use language like, well, you went through a a theological change or a transition or maybe transformation. But I don't want to use any language that connotes like a, a negative to positive type of shift, you know, like any of the ministry that you were doing before right. this journey was, was of less value than what you do now. So uh, what language do you use to put on your journey? Well,
1: let me just tell you a little bit of the story. Um, okay. I had a dramatic conversion experience when I was a teenager. Mm-hmm. And overnight, went from being the high school Led Zeppelin freak to the high school Jesus freak. Um, and so that's, that's how I start following Jesus. It's in the Jesus movement. Awesome. Uh, by the time I'm 17, I'm leading a ministry. It's a coffeehouse ministry that was essentially, basically, it's a music venue for the Jesus music scene of the time. Mm-hmm. But it it functioned in many regards as a church because we were winning young people to Jesus. I was baptizing them. I was discipling them. And then this officially became our church, Word of Life Church, when I was 22. But I was really doing the work of a pastor from the time I was 17. So I've been a pastor longer than I've been an adult. Wow. (laughs) I'm not saying that's a good idea. Uh, I'm not recommending, that's not a pattern to follow, but it's just part of my story. It's what happened. Mm -hmm. And so I start with the Jesus movement that funnels me into the charismatic movement, Mm -hmm. which was good until it wasn't. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then charismatic movement sort of leads me into, you know, some more to faith, all of that sort of stuff. And it's just, we're talking now over a very long period of time. Mm -hmm. Uh, over 20 years. So it's just happening incrementally. Our church is growing. It becomes large. And around the age, well, around the age of 40, and, and by the way, I'm 59 because people want to know, to figure this out. I, I never make any bones about being how old I am or am not. Yeah, own I'm thinking, it, man. Own so it. When I was 40, I began to just sense this unease. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, something just doesn't feel, something's off. Uh I I entered this thing in a very radical revolutionary kind of way. And it just felt sort of tame. Mm-hmm. It felt uh very accommodated to the wider culture, although I don't know if I could have used that language at that point. And so what I did was I altered what I was reading. I had read just you know what what charismatic Christians would read. Um And I, and I tired of it because it's pretty thin and I didn't need to read anymore because I already knew what what there was to be said. Right. Um, And so, and I, but I didn't know where to go. I was, I was alone in that sense. And so I just had an instinct that I needed something old. Mm -hmm. And so I I thought, well, I've just got to back up and start from the beginning and the beginning didn't mean the bible although i've always been rooted in scripture i've always sure. done that but but i i understood okay but i'm reading the scripture through a certain lens of interpretation so how do i go how far can i go back and i started reading the church fathers i started once again reading philosophy which i'd done somewhat as a teenager because i just liked it but i began to do it more seriously and i began to read uh, just what I would consider the canon of Western literature, the, the mm-hmm. great novels and writers that have helped form the Western mind. And this goes on for about five years. Where I'm just doing this kind of on the side on my own until I reach a crisis point. And I was 45, or as I say, halfway to 90. <laughs> and I, I just thought something's got to give here because something's not right. Remember everything in my life at a, what we call a ministry level, Uh, by the metrics that Americans like to measure success, was stellar. You know, everything's large and growing and big and booming and all of that. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: It's what ministers, you know, claim that they want. But I'm deeply dissatisfied. So I began 2004 with a lengthy 22-day fast where I did nothing but fast and pray, sleep at night, preach at the appointed times for 22 days. Wow. And it was, I I hope to never do anything like that again. There there was not a moment of it that I enjoyed. It was, it was, it was brutal. But it shows you how desperate I was. I hope to never be that desperate again. And I don't know that, I mean, just to be honest with you, Paul, I don't think I could do that again. Mm. I mean, maybe I could, I kind of doubt it. Uh, But this was a, a, a absolutely desperate point in my life. And, and I was crying out to God for something that I didn't even know what it mm. was because wow. you, know, you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And I got down to 130 pounds. People were worried about me. People thought I was dying. I thought I was dying. Yeah. And I was the whole first half of life was dying. Um, that led eventually to a breakthrough that came in the form of a book. I I was embarrassingly ignorant of what I call the good stuff. I mean, I was reading ancient Christian thinking, which mm-hmm. was laid a certain foundation, but you know, I didn't. I was nothing was contemporary, and I had a sense that I needed this, but I didn't even know what it was. I didn't know if it existed. I was in a cocoon, in a bubble, mm-hmm. in a charismatic closet, you know, and, and I just didn't know. Yeah, and I prayed one day. I prayed. I said, "I said, God, show me what to read." I was. I'm, I'm here in my house right now, and and uh, I prayed that here in my home. Hmm. And my wife walked into the room a few moments later. She had no idea what I prayed. Walks up to me and hands me a book, and she says, "Here, I think you should read this." Well, that was this, you know, <laughs> a moment of <laughs> wow that. Yeah. Was, yeah, you know, one of those rare moments in life where something is so coincidental that it can't be. Yeah, she yeah. Have to read. Yeah, My wife walks in not knowing what i pray. Yeah. Well, just walks hands me here, I think you should read. Yeah, this.
0: that's like straight out of the Bible type of stuff. Right.
1: and she had not read this book, and to this day we don't know exactly how it got in our house. Hmm. She says she didn't buy it. I know I didn't buy it. Somehow it got in our house. The book was "The Divine Conspiracy" by Dallas Willard. And that kicked open a door that led in a flood. Hmm. And I began to read theology. I read during a period of, let's say, 2004 to maybe 2008, something like that. When I, another thing I, that I don't think I could ever repeat, I couldn't do that fast like I did again. And I don't think I could, I could read. I'm a pretty voracious reader,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but I could never do that again. Where I was basically reading almost every night. From six to midnight, wow! And never once thinking it was work. Wow! I was I was like a miner who had struck gold and couldn't pull it out of the ground fast enough. He was. What did you read? Well, I read N. T. Wright, and I mean everything. <laughs> everything he'd written. Yeah, you know, which is no small task. No. Walter Brueggemann, I mentioned uh, uh, Dallas Willard, uh, Stanley Hauerwas, David Bentley Hart. Eugene Peterson, these, these are the people that I was, I mean, many others, some Carl yeah. Barth. Wow. And it changed me. Yeah. And I was thrilled. I mean, I suppose I was haunted by a fear that, that, the, that Christianity wasn't as rich and deep as I hoped it could be. That mm. I kind of reached the end of it. Yeah. And then I realized, oh, no, <laughs> no, I haven't even scratched the tip. Yeah. And I found this vein of gold. I'd found, I, I mentioned I was in a charismatic closet. It was, it was like I had mistaken a broom closet in a great cathedral for the whole cathedral. And one day I opened the door and went, Oh, I see. There's more. Wow. To this." Yeah. So anyway, I'm just going on and on. But that, that's, that's what happened. Of okay. course, as I'm being, I, I, I preach from who I am. You know, mm-hmm. I'm not, my preaching and, and me, are synonymous. I mean, I don't separate the two. Now, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, you know, a, a, a wise pastor may not preach everything he knows or she mm-hmm. knows, but mm-hmm. that, that's always been hard for me a little bit. <laughs> I really <laughs> tend to want to preach everything I know because I just naturally get excited about it. Yeah. But, you know, so so how? What do I? Well, the, my go-to metaphor. That's why I called my my memoir this. Uh, is water to wine, but that, that that does kind of connote a negative to positive. But I think negative to positive is better than positive to negative. That's why yeah. I don't the, the 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 metaphor deconstruction. Mm. I, didn't, I I never saw myself as deconstructing. I saw myself as finding the pearl of great price, finding a great treasure, mm. discovering that that water can turn to wine. Mm-hmm. That something that is that is thin can become rich and filled with depth. Yes. Yeah. So that's how I describe it. Yeah. Now, as as you know, and as our listeners might guess, because there is a story here, not everyone was as thrilled with my <laughs> discoveries as I was. Yeah. I kind of had an. I mean, I'm not stupid, so I had a. I, I had maybe a suspicion that that might be the case, but I have to admit, I turned out to be shocked mm. at how. Um, So many people resisted, Mm. you know, uh, people don't like change. I get that. But, uh, I was really shocked by, by, well, we ended up losing a thousand people.
0: And that's out of how many?
1: Oh, let's say, let's say 2,500 or Mm -hmm.
0: so. So big chunk,
1: 40%. Huge chunk. And, um, it seemed like I lost all the people that had any money or were willing to give it. <laughs> and so that made it all the harder. Right. Um, and I, I laugh about it and I make jokes about it. And I can tell you that today my wife and I were, were fine. We're healed. We're happy. Mm-hmm. We're, word of life is the, is <laughs> I mean, it's at a really good place. Um, but we went through a very hard time yeah. that, that in one way, we weren't sure if we were going to survive. We weren't sure if the church was going to survive or if we would survive. I, so I don't want to sugarcoat it. It was brutal. Mm. I mean, we went again. Maybe, maybe I shouldn't say this, but you know, you're asking for a bone to I think we both would say we went years without being happy. Wow! That we were just well, I, I, I say that, and I, I need to clarify that. Yeah, it, it's it was a strange experience. On the one hand, we and we we went through this together. My wife and I. We're making mm-hmm. the same discoveries, and all this is happening to us both. On the one hand, we were deeply satisfied and finding great joy in discovering the beauty and the depth mm-hmm. of historical, authentic Christianity. Mm-hmm. That was genuine. Yeah. But making the changes brought so much pain in our life. I'll say it this way. Even though we'd had joy and we weren't regretting these discoveries and, and implementing them, I would say that we, we never didn't feel pain for several years. Sure. Yeah. Even longer than I, if you ask me how long time, I'm going to tell you how long, because that would really discourage me. <laughs> we went a long time with just constant pain. Yeah. Yeah. A broken
0: uh, sure. Well, I, I can assume that a lot of these people who, who left or who are having difficulties, they were probably there for a long time. A lot of them it, had probably seen. Seemed...
1: We had known since we were teenagers, people that I'd led to the Lord, baptized. Uh, married, uh, baptized their kids. We had this interesting phenomenon, though, and it happened many times. People my age and maybe older were leaving the church and their adult children staying Hmm. and saying, Mom, Dad, you can do what you want, but we think you're crazy because it's this thing that's keeping us in Christianity. Hmm. If we don't find a church like Word of Life is becoming we're not going to be in any church.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So I thought, I thought that was a really good sign Yeah, that, that we were, well, I, I say I wasn't looking for signs. People ask me this. Did you ever have any self doubt? Did you ever doubt yourself? No. Yeah. I, I never did. Did you ever think you were crazy? I never did. I mean, I knew what I was finding was truth. I knew that yeah. Yeah. because I never had any other motive. I wasn't, trying to change I wasn't looking for something novel I wasn't trying to wreck my church but I was just committed to knowing God is revealed in Christ and as, as I saw it I knew it was true
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, but I did think it was still a good sign that though people in their 50s are leaving people in their 20s are staying
2: mm.
1: now, the problem is people in their 20s don't have any money or if they do they don't want to give it <laughs> but still the future belongs to the young so I thought that's that's a good thing
0: yeah. Yeah. Um, what's a, uh, reminds me of another, uh, of course I'm naming all the popular Dylan songs. I'm sure, you know, all the deep cuts, but you know, the times oh, they yeah. are changing. get, out, get out of the the way. If you don't understand. And mothers
1: and fathers throughout the land, don't criticize what you can't understand. Your sons and daughters are beyond your command. Your old road is rapidly aging. If you, if, if you can't lend a hand, please get out of the way. I, I, I messed it up there the last, uh, uh, if, please for the times they are achieved <laughs> you saved it You saved it. <laughs> um, what,
0: what do you think was, was too much for, for some of those who, who left what do you think it was
1: only one thing was too much I mean there was things here and there some people didn't like an emphasis on liturgy and sacraments some people didn't like uh, our changes in eschatology but those were negotiable.
2: Mm-hmm. What was
1: non-negotiable was things that impinged upon politics. Mm. Challenges to nationalism. Mm-hmm. For many people, that was the non-negotiable. Yeah. And, of course, they would then frame it as, oh, Brian's become liberal. He's a Democrat. He's da-da-da-da. Which, right. no, that isn't what's happening at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm really seeing the kingdom of God. I'm seeing that Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm seeing that it's not elephant or donkey that I'm interested in. I'm following the lamb. Mm-hmm. And when I made that pointed, uh, that was too much for yeah a lot of people. Yeah.
0: Well, we, we're in a culture that likes lines and likes easy correlations, like you said, and this is the good team and this is the bad team. And right. Jesus can only pick one or the other, right. Where as if we, we get into the wine area, we see that ah, it's, it's messier than that. And, right. um, yeah, I, I could see where that would be too much uh, for some. Um, so now, though, you're at Word of Life Church, and all the people who disagree with you have left, right? And it's only 100% people who no, think that 100%. everything you say is right. No, right? <laughs> it's, never, it's never
1: that way. Our culture has changed. Sure. Uh, and, and I'll tell you, we, we will have plenty of people that adhere to a pretty strong, hard, right, conservative position, but um they They hold it somewhat loosely,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they do recognize that all things are subordinate to Christ, and that at Word of life Church, what we have cultivated is a culture of kindness I, yes so uh you can be a supporter of a particular political position, provided you can do so with kindness
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so we have um I don't want to say too much. I think I can. I, I can say this. I can say this much. This would be fine. Uh, we have a, a very remarkable situation where, um, I. I'm, you see, I'm thinking how I can say that. I don't want to say what I shouldn't say, but I have within the last month, in my communion line, we have seven stations for communion on Sunday, mm-hmm. and uh, you know. Perry and I served together, and we always earned in a different one. About two weeks ago, I served back-to-back two ICE officers hmm. and two undocumented immigrants. Wow. Back-to-back. They were, and I don't think either one, I think I was the one that knew those are ICE officers that are members of our church. Yeah. That's an undocumented immigrant family members of our church. Wow. And they were back-to-back. I thought, hmm. Hmm, that's interesting. That's, that, that's, that's, I don't know what to say about it. there. There's something kingdom going on there yeah. that those, and, and the ice officers, I don't want to say too much. They know what my position on some of this is mm-hmm. and they would disagree. But they continue to come because they're finding Jesus there.
0: You, you share in the body and, and, and the blood. Yeah. Which, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's powerful, man. That's, uh, and I think that's the mark of, of, you know a healthy church, not necessarily uniformity in in what everybody uh thinks and believes but but places where um the lamb, as you say, not the donkey or or the elephant or whatever is yeah. is held above each and and we're all working um, so I've heard you say elsewhere that um you know you don't it's not your intention to force people into their own um you know, or, 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 throw people into the same journey that you've been on. Right. It,
2: right. Yeah. Right.
0: Elaborate on that because I'm sure that's, that's a tricky well, road I mean, to walk. I
1: think, I think I can, I think I legitimately can lay claim to the title pastor theologian.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, I do, I do the work of a theologian.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I lecture now one of my most common places to lecture and teach are seminaries. Mm-hmm. So I'm a theologian. Mm-hmm. Most Christians aren't, and they don't need to be. Mm. Um, you know, there is a, there's plenty of people in our church that will say, yeah, Word of life has changed. Yeah, I think some of it was theology, but they probably couldn't tell you what. Because as long as they're maintaining a connection with Jesus, the story of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, the presence of Jesus, the reality of Jesus, that's what they're doing. And they're not... Thinking theologically, one of the problems with the Protestant Reformation, I'm, I, you know, I'm fine with the Protestant Reformation, <laughs> something had to happen. The, the Renaissance church was deeply corrupt and something had to give. Mm-hmm. But we have placed an intolerable burden on all believers to be theologians. And they're just, that's, that's, that's an absurd stance to take. And so if we kind of back off from that and realize that not everyone has to do that, mm-hmm. then, um, well, I think what they would say, what they would say, what they would notice about word of life, they would say, there isn't an us versus them, uh, angry culture at mm-hmm. word of life. There may once have been, but that's not there anymore. Mm. Yeah.
2: They,
1: they would recognize things that like, they would be, it would be hard for them to cast in terms of theology. Now, the one thing, in fact, I never would say to people, I changed my theology. What I would say is I continue to grow and develop to nuance, to learn, to adjust. I never said I changed. I just said, you know, grew. Yeah. With one exception. And the one exception is eschatology. And I just said, you know what? I changed Mm. because I was wrong. Mm. And my one defense is, um, I was I didn't invent dispensationalism. <laughs> it was, it, it, it's just what was given to me. Sure. And I just went along for the ride until uh I asked N.T. Wright into my heart and he saved me. <laughs> <laughs> Critics will hate that. That's a joke, folks. <laughs> I'm just saying that N.T. Wright has has done a tremendous job in helping, especially Americans, because Europeans and British never had this problem. The the left behind, uh, late great planet Earth, um, you know, John Hagee, all that sort of eschatology, that is uniquely American. Hmm. And N.T. Wright, using the scriptures as a New Testament scholar, has done tremendous work to show that we have completely misunderstood those passages where we've cobbled together a rapture theology and all of that. Mm -hmm. And so in that area, I just had to admit Mm -hmm. that I changed. And I changed because I saw the truth and realized that I had been misled a long time ago.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Um,
0: So, you know, your journey, like I said, has been inspiring to me because I think it's inauthentic for anybody to expect their their minister to not be on a journey of faith, to not be in this process of, of water to wine. Hopefully that's just where we all want to uh, get to and what we all want to be on. So uh, because you have done this and done it so publicly, do, you, um, do ministers ever contact you and sort of say, hey, man, I'm going through this. Oh, what, what should oh, I do?
1: You have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when was the last one? Uh, 45 minutes ago.
2: Wow. I
1: hear from pastors every day. Hmm. They contact me constantly. Hmm. Um, I, you know, I say every day, let's say between five and 10 a week. Yeah. Wow. Most Most of them, because they read Water to Wine, but it can be other things too. Uh, I, because my journey was public enough and because enough people know about me, they think, and it, it, you know, it's, so I've received hundreds, thousands of messages from these pastors over the last, really, it started happening about three or four years ago that it really began to happen a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I've had, I heard all these messages you know that they you know they find me on you know Twitter, Facebook, they can find my email they find out you know people if people want to find me, they'll find me mm-hmm. and they send me their message their their story now everyone is everyone is um precious, everyone represents a unique life, living a unique story, and yet yeah. they they follow a template yeah they're telling me the same story over yeah. and over and over often they're in small churches, they're lonely, they've begun to read, they've found something much better. They see the distortions in Americanized pop Christianity and nationalistic Christianity. And, but they're scared. You know, how do they make change? How do they push their church in a new direction? I mean, many of these people, this is, this is their vocation. Their jobs, how they put bread. Their job. This is how they pay the bills, Mm -hmm. and you know, it's a risky move. And they, they just, they just want someone to talk to. And a lot of them come see me. I mean, they'll ask if they, you know, you know, I I, I respond to every one of these. I sometimes can't respond at length. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes I try to a little bit, but I respond to all of them. Occasionally, I'll give one or two to my wife, who will respond more at length. Um. A lot of mass to come see me. And I, I just always say yes. Now we have to work out when, you know. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah. I say, okay, you want to come see me? Come see me. And so, you know, people all the time are flying from wherever, Seattle, New York, Dallas, where, mm-hmm. wherever, to come spend, to have lunch with me. Mm-hmm. And uh, just so they don't feel so alone. And they just maybe want a little counsel, a little advice. Yeah. And that's why, we, that's why we did our water to wine gathering mm. that we just did, uh, what was it, like a week ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought, well, I don't mind doing that. In fact, I think it's important to do that. But what if, what if we had a bunch of people come all at once, mm. and that way they can meet one another? Yeah. Um, and in every session of our Water to Wine gathering, we, we did Q&A. And um, we would like have 35-minute presentations with 15 minutes Q&A. It was one of the first sessions. I wasn't the speaker. I think it was maybe Jonathan Martin who had spoken Mm -hmm. and we're beginning the Q&A and there was a young man. I was way on the other side of the room from him. So I didn't really see him that well, but he he looked like he might be, you know, maybe not even 30, late Mm twenties. And he's a young pastor and he's going through these changes and he's, feel so lonely. He began to just say, his question really was, how do I find people? How do I find some friends? And then he started crying.
2: Oh man.
1: And yeah. I, I, I know that and he was just, then just surrounded by people that prayed for him. I heard later that, you know, about 15 people said, here's my email. Uh, reach out yeah, to me. Yeah. We'll, we'll hang out together. We'll get the, some of them were even close enough to where he lived that they could actually, so, um, I, I'm, I'm rambling now, but yeah, if, if the question is, do people re- do pastors reach out to me? Yes.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And to such an extent, you know, I'm just one guy.
2: Uh huh.
1: And so I'm thinking, you know, just anecdotally, if that many people are reaching out to me, mm-hmm. I mean, you're out there.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean,
1: this this yearning for something beyond Americanized, nationalized consumer Christianity is deep. Yeah. There are pastors out there. I mean, the the numbers must be vast. Hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. Um, that's, I I know one of the things that has saved me, I mean, I'm only, I'm 33. Um, I've only been in ministry like seven or eight years, but one of the things that keeps me loving what I do is a a peer group, a group of, um, fellow ministers from, uh, divinity school and, and us getting together and, um, and just a space to be real and be who we are. And, um, Gosh, I I I feel hurt for people who don't have something like that. Spaces where they can be honest about their journeys. So, um, so uh, what what words of advice uh, do you give to to folks like that?
1: Well, I mean, you know, it it just it varies from situation to situation. But one of the things I would say is a pastor needs to be realistic about their situation. Mm -hmm. My situation was a little bit unique. You see, I am and was then when I was navigating these changes, the founding pastor of a non-denominational church, which means I wasn't going to be fired. I didn't have a board that was going to fire me. I didn't have a bishop that was going to come in and yank me out. Mm -hmm. Which means I had the opportunity to attempt this. Now, I, I that didn't guarantee any success because I could just completely wreck the whole thing. <laughs> the right. So small that it wasn't even you know financially viable. Mm-hmm. That was a tremendous fear during that time. I bet. Um, but at least I I had the opportunity to attempt it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, you know, I still had to decide would I do it, and for me, there really was no decision because. I just couldn't unknow what I knew and be true to myself. Yeah. But not every pastor is in that situation. I mean, there are many pastors that all they have to do is, you know, suggest that maybe rapture theology isn't actually an orthodox position that the church has held for 2,000 years, Mm. and the board convenes and he's gone. Yeah. Or something like that. So not everyone's in a position, so you kind of have to decide how much influence can I really have yeah of course then some sometimes I say well maybe you'll just need do the best you can be a good pastor and look for an exit strategy maybe begin to look around where else you might go uh, but so the first thing I th- say though is is you need some friends you need some people around you probably it won't be church members you mm-hmm. probably and they can be anywhere because you know here, I, don't know, you're, I don't even know where you are. You're somewhere in the South. I can tell by how you talk. I'm in Wilmington, North Carolina. You wouldn't have to convince <laughs> me that. I totally believe you. <laughs> and so here you're in North Carolina. I'm in Missouri, and here we are face-to-face talking. Yeah, so right. the technology exists to have a cadre of pastoral friends scattered all over. I mean, when I went through this, I had two primary friends other than my wife. Uh, Brad Jerzak, Canadian theologian, lives near Vancouver. And Joe Beach, pastor of Amazing Grace Church in Denver. So we're in St. Joseph, Denver, Vancouver. Yeah. But we're communicating nearly every day. Hmm. And we're all reading the same books. And, hey, you got to read this and discussing. So, so pastors need that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's, you know, you'll seek and you'll find. Knock and the door will be open. Ask your receipt. You'll, you'll find that if you start looking for it.
2: Mm-hmm. Is,
0: that, uh, is that a Dylan quote to who said that? <laughs> <laughs>
1: That, that's that's actually my favorite lyric. Oh, okay, all right, got gotcha. you. Um, and then the other thing is, you have to be realistic about uh, what you can accomplish. Kind of take an assessment: Do I really have enough collateral mm-hmm. with this church to move it? Sure. Or or am I just going to set myself up to be dismissed?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, I appreciate it. you. Got to be realistic about about things and and be be as. <laughs> As authentic, maybe as you realistically can, um, yeah. and and if if that brings you to a place where you just can't function there, then then there you go also, and you yeah. a chance to look and keep your eyes open. Um, all right. Well, like I said, I appreciate you being here, and uh, this is. Um, the first interview I've done, but I think that what I want to do at the end of each interview, because this is about vulnerability and the name is the naked preacher. And I like puns. Uh, I I, w- I would like to end each interview with something called the skin invitation because <laughs> you know, worship service, you got to have an invitation, right? right? So basically it's going to be three uh, just quick sort of rapid fire questions, uh, an opportunity for you to okay. uh, share a bit more about yourself and, And uh as a vulnerable pastor. So uh here is the skin invitation. And if we have music, it would be right here. If not, this would just sound dumb. (laughs) (laughs)
2: All
0: right. Uh,
1: not one plea.
0: Yeah. Question one. What's one mistake you've made in ministry?
1: Oh, you just want one. That's easy. Let's see. (laughs) You know, I would say that early on I made this mistake repeatedly until I learned my lesson. And that was when we were really growing and I was hiring uh, additional staff, especially pastoral staff, I hired people like me. Hmm. You know, you didn't need people. Like, I didn't need people like me. I needed people unlike me. What I tended to do was hire uh, zealous preachers that sort of viewed the life the same way I did. And they really had essentially the same gifts. Mm-hmm. That was just plain stupid. That was just, you know, why did I do that? I needed to hire people at what I wasn't good at doing. Right. I was hiring friends instead of hiring really what we needed. That was Yeah,
0: yeah that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, sort of a, a Abe Lincoln team arrivals type of thing. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. Question two. What is one of your fears in ministry?
1: I suppose that ministry would become abstract so that you love the ministry, you just can't stand the people.
2: <laughs>
1: mm. You know, where, oh, I, I love ministry, but what you mean, I mean, you know, thinking about God and writing sermons and developing theology. And oh, I got to pray with that person. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I don't want that to happen. Right. And I, I, by the way, I'm by nature, I'm an introvert. You know, mm. people that see me from afar, you know, if, if you, a public figure knows yeah. how to be public. Yep. It doesn't mean that they're an extrovert. Yep, I'm the same way. So, so for me, the most you know, an introvert extrovert really has to do with energy. Uh, it has nothing to do with whether you like people or not. It just it has. My wife is a strong extrovert, and she's energized in small little conversation groups, just 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 you know, buzzing around the foyer and seeing everybody. Me, that exhausts me. Now I do it, mm-hmm. but it exhausts me. Yeah. And um, so I have to be careful that I don't put too much distance
2: mm-hmm.
1: between me and actual people. So that's a fear. That's a healthy fear that maybe keeps me alert to my, my propensity maybe to make that mistake.
2: Sure. Sure.
1: That, make, that makes
0: sense. I can uh, relate to that one as well. Uh, so third question, what is one thing that you completely rock in ministry? What's, what are you just oh, gifted at? No,
1: you, almost, you almost just said it. I am pretty darn good at incorporating rock music <laughs> into my preaching. Outstanding. I'm, I'm coming up now, starting here in just a few weeks, my 10th year in a row of doing Finding God on Your iPod. I know iPods oh. aren't such a thing anymore. This is by far and away the most popular series yeah. I do. And if I do say so myself, Paul, I'm pretty. <laughs> <laughs> at that I, I, I have two bodies of knowledge christian theology and rock and roll and Outstanding. putting them together <laughs> yeah man i hear you well uh and if
0: if anybody wants a taste of uh some of your preferences here in your water to wine memoir you have at the at the back a playlist of yeah. uh, lots of Doesn't everybody great-
1: have a playlist to go with their book
0: yeah absolutely every <laughs> i know i have one and the imaginary book that I will write one day. So uh, sure. Well, uh, Pastor Brian Zahn, I appreciate so much you sitting down with me and and like I said, being such a a, a great steward of your journey. It's it's one that you um, that you own, but that you share and uh, and uh, take it from one uh, preacher who's just trying to to be a bit more vulnerable and out there and real for for folks. Uh, I appreciate it. Thank you, Paul. All right. Well, there you go. He started with water and now he is savoring wine. What a journey. My prayer for you, friends, is that you can be open to going on one yourselves because there is always more of God. There's always more to love, always more to worship. There's always more to share with those that we serve about the divine goodness we taste and see. So go forth in a spirit sort of like Brian's one willing to grow, and one willing to offer the new things we discover with those who follow Christ alongside us. Until next time, peace be with y'all.